Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. When I was a teenager, I became obsessed with surfing. Obsessed. I couldn't surf and I still can't. But I loved everything about it. My room was filled with surfing posters from ceiling to floor. So to talk all about surfing around the world, I have invited the most successful female surfer in history to join us. She has won six consecutive world titles between 1998 and 2003, which no other human has done, not even Kelly Slater. Then went on to win a seventh world title in 2006 before retiring from the ASP World Tour in 2008. She then returned to the water in 2018 to win her eighth world title, becoming the first female winner of the WSL World Masters Championship. She then became the first former female world champion of any sport to take on the role of chairperson of a national sporting organisation. And there's still more. In 2015, she was recognised for her outstanding achievements when she was awarded with an Officer of Order of Australia. I am thrilled to welcome Lane Beachley to With You Every Step. Hi. Congratulations on a stellar career. Thank you. Yeah, the one thing that's missing at the end of that biography is Lane Beachley is a massive underachiever. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, you haven't done enough. No, I've still got so much more to do. So much more to do. I can't wait to see what happens in the future. Yeah, me too. A lot of travel, that's for sure. Yay, that's what we're here to talk about. Excellent, I'm all over that. Great. Do you remember your first trip that you ever took? I remember my first road trip we ever took, which was up to Foster Tunkari area on the east coast of New South Wales. And the first overseas trip I ever took was to Fiji when I was four years old and I got a really horrendous ear infection. Oh, so you actually remember it? Yeah, it was horrible. It was very sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, ear infections are not pleasant. No, especially when you're that young in Noosa. I mean, it's hard enough on your ears flying. I mean, in Fiji, hard enough on your ears flying there. But then to get an infection while I was there was not not much fun at all. No, and especially flying because flying really affects the ears. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, all that pressure and tension and on the ascent and descent. So, yeah, Fiji. Okay. And do you remember after that what you did then? Like do you have other trips that you took? Oh, so my dad loved to travel. So we did a lot of trips. We went to Hawaii when I was about nine. And before that, I remember going up to Tamworth for the country music festival. We did a lot of road trips. We went down to Lake Conjola in southern New South Wales. Where else did we? Yeah, we used to just get in the car and Go places. Were you already of... surfing at this point? I started surfing when I was four, so yes, I was surfing. But I wasn't I wasn't addicted to surfing when I was a kid. I was happy to do other things. So I, I loved horses and I loved playing tennis. Yeah. Going up to Tamworth, we had mates who had uh, properties with horses on them, so I got to practice my balance on horses as much as on surfboards. Okay. Yeah, it's all kind of works in together, doesn't it? It's all related. Yeah. Did you play other sports? I played tennis, I played cricket, I played hockey and soccer. You never got into basketball? I did get into basketball when I hit high school. Okay, I'm a basketballer, so I'm like, oh, interesting. 
I loved basketball when I was in high school and I won MVP quite often because our centre was really tall and so whenever the, the ball was, you know, wherever we got the started, she would, uh, she towered over everybody and the minute the ball was was in the air, I took off and she had a very strong arm. So She could just throw it down to you. Threw it to me. I'd bounce it once and then lay it up. Beautiful. <laughs> I should have added that into the intro. <laughs> yeah. MVP in basketball as well. That's it. (laughs) Not competitive at all. No. So when did you decide that surfing was going to be a career for you? I was about 15. I uh, decided that I wanted to become a world champion surfer. When I was 14, I decided I wanted to become a professional surfer and I came dead last in the first event I competed in. And then when I was 15, the pro tour came to town and I paid my entry fee and went into the trials and competed against all the in-form current pros and once again came dead last. It inspired me to want to work a little harder. It inspired me because I just loved it more than anything. And so I worked really hard at it. And then, but I went back to basics. You know, I went from throwing myself up against the best surfers in the world to then pulling it back and going, how about I just compete against girls my age at my level and see where I'm at? And I competed in the regional scholastic titles and I won those. I went, wow, you know, when you get that win and it ignites that first sense of self belief. And then yeah. I went into the state titles in the scholastic region and won those and I went woo I'm on a I'm on a roll and then went to the national titles and hated every minute of it so <laughs> needless to say I uh, I think I'm one of the few surfers that never had a junior career and never had an amateur career do you think that's something that juniors now should have Definitely. You've got to hone your skill in your backyard, but also because you're expected to hit the pro tour and win. You don't have that time to fail and learn you learn your way and navigate your way through the, the ebbs and flows of competition. So there's a lot more expectation and pressure on people to, to show up and perform. Now, I have read in a lot of interviews that you've spoken about Manly being full of men and lots of men in there surfing and how you had to kind of go in and make your way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Manly is the most appropriately named beach in the world, and I still stand by that. It's a place where I grew up surfing, and it's a place where I feel like I truly belonged. It was where I found my tribe. It's where I found my sense of self. It's where I found my centre. And I started surfing down at the southern end of Manly Beach, which is um, at South Stain. And basically, I kind of I look at Manly today, and I go, it's about it's almost like a, a graduation process. It's almost like you you're in year seven down at the southern end, and then the king of the grommet, well, you the the world's biggest grommets, right? You just you. Mm-hmm basically deal with whatever is dealt and you just have to cop it because you're the new kids on the block and then by the time you hit year eight or nine you're starting to move further up the beach because you've you feel you need to free yourself of kitty's corner and go and go and enter into the ocean where the waves maybe have a little bit more size or a little higher quality not as much protection and then by the time you hit year 10 you're halfway up the beach and that's where I hit encountered North Stain, which is an area that's quite hostile, quite intimidating, quite threatening. And then you've got the guys who are even more hostile and threatening, intimidating than the ocean. And that's where I encountered a lot of my challenges. And then I graduated past that by the time I was in year 12 and hit the tour, I was quite comfortable out at Queenscliff with my mates, my tribe and the boys who believed in me and supported me versus the guys back down towards year 10 who gave me a really hard time. Obviously, you've won lots of world titles. 
I'm sure there's still people that go out for a surf that don't know who you are. Have you found around the world that you've been out and you've had a man that's kind of been really nasty to you and then seen you actually catch a wave and then kind of backed off? Yes, yeah, there's a lot of guys that don't recognize me, or a lot of girls too who don't recognize me. And, but I allow my surfing to do my talking for me. I never expect anyone in the water to know who I am. I always treat it with respect and I treat others with respect and, and then I just allow my performance to go, oh. And so I've had a lot of guys come up to me and go, wow, I was watching this chick and she was just ripping and then I realized it was you. <laughs> <laughs> So if there is a woman out there that just wants to start surfing and go out and try and she's finding men are being a bit mean and a bit territorial, how do you think she should cope with that? What should she do? Well, the best way to learn how to surf is go to a surf school because they teach you the fundamental basics and principles. And there's a lot of unspoken etiquette in surfing. So there's a lot of rules and regulations that if you don't understand them, you would never adhere to them. And so people, beginners of all gender and all types can become quite hazardous in surfing areas because they see great surfers out there and they go, oh, that must be where I go. So I'll just go out there. And then they become, yeah, they, they become, <laughs> they become a bit challenging to navigate your way around. So mm. if you, if you're encountering hostility and threats, you can disarm them by asking for help or ask them for guidance or ask them for just reassurance or ask them for some, <laughs> ask them for some feedback. I think that's really good advice and maybe not go to where they are, right? Try and kind of go somewhere where it, you're not getting into their space, maybe? Please, please. Yeah, you can. it's easy to recognise who good surfers are and who aren't good surfers because you know, the best surfers are fast and powerful. They, they clearly demonstrate experience and knowledge and ability. Don't go where they are. Yeah. <laughs> stay away stay away from them go down the beach where it's a little maybe a little bit softer a little more user-friendly there may be people out there who are a little bit more patient because the best surfers we tend to be intolerant well for me sometimes you know my, my time in the water is quite limited I'm still quite competitive in my mindset I like to complete every wave and if I keep completing my wave on top of a surfer who's just learning how to surf in the worst possible place then I'm going to lose my cool yeah and then it's also up to me to go listen where you're at is not ideal to learn how to surf. Can I please suggest you move down there 50 metres? Or... Mm-hmm. And especially for women who you know, are still just learning, they need to find a surf buddy and go and do it together. I think it is a social inclusion environment where you can feel very excluded by the pack. So grab a surf buddy and go and have some fun. Oh, I think that's great advice. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you join the tour... And you had to go overseas for your first competition. Where was that? My first competition I competed in overseas was in California. Okay. And it was at Huntington Beach, the OP Pro at Huntington Beach. And how old were you? I was 18. Okay. I made the main event. So the way the tour used to be structured is that you would qualify to be a trialist. So I think 48 competitors earned over the series of time to get seeding points and because obviously so many people wanted to compete but at the time it was also who could afford to and uh, I would pay my entry fee which was about $75 US and then I would come up against a whole bunch of girls my age and at my ability and we'd fight it out to earn a spot through the trials and I think the top eight or top four positions in the trials would then go through to the main round where we'd come up against the top eight surfers in the world. And that first year I came up against the current world champion in the name of Frida Zamba and she smashed me. Okay. 
smash me. But I earned $1,000 and that enabled me to stay overseas for the next month or so. I was couch surfing, so I wasn't paying for accommodation. That was going to be my next question was how does it work when you get there? You have to try and find your own accommodation? Yeah, you find everything, your own accommodation, your own transfers and transport, and it's every every woman for herself. Wow, so it can get quite expensive. It got very expensive, yeah. I found my um, income and expenses ledger from that year. Yeah. <laughs> movies were a lot cheaper back then. I was spending $7 on a ticket to go to the movies in 1990. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, yeah, I was literally tabulating every expense and every little piece of income and doing my best to make ends meet. Yeah, very expensive way to live my life. From Huntington Beach, where did you go next? Do you remember? From Huntington, I came home and then got back to work because I was working in a surf shop and working at a bar and working in a restaurant and working in a cafe and doing everything I could to make ends meet. And then I earned enough money where I could afford to go back to America and I went to Hawaii and I competed in the last events of the year. So I traveled all the way to Hawaii. And that, once again, I mean, both experiences were uh, very eye-opening. So the year I graduated from high school in 1989 and my dad took me to Hawaii and California because him and his girlfriend or wife at the time, my stepmother, were uh, going to a friend's wedding. And so they dumped me at Huntington Beach with a friend of theirs and they went off to San Francisco to go to the wedding. And so while I was at Huntington Beach, the guy who I was with decided to take me down to the famous Main Street in Huntington Beach and took me to George's surf shop. And I met this South African guy who ran the shop called Kevin and I and I went surfing with him and I told him of my aspirations to come back the following year to compete at the OP Pro. And he's like, yeah, come and stay with me. Sure, I can, I can look after you. And I went, oh, awesome. I've got accommodation. I've got someone to pick me up from the airport. This is amazing. Yeah. So I went home and went, yeah, Dad, I've got you – know, I've sorted out where I'm going to stay and how I'm going to get there in California next year. He went, fantastic. So – the following year, I make contact with Kevin. I ring him up and I say I'm flying in and, and he comes and picks me up and get back to the unit and I realise it's a very small unit with a very small amount of beds. He was expecting me to sleep in the bed oh, with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. uh, that's very presumptuous of you. So uh, he got very upset with me that I wasn't obliging and therefore I was forced to sleep on the couch for the month that I was staying with him and his roommates and his roommates were awesome they took great care of me they became some of my best friends and I continued to stay with them for years and years afterwards so so you didn't feel uncomfortable enough that you wanted to leave I did but I had nowhere to go okay yeah so we got through that and the same thing with Hawaii when I got there I had nowhere to stay I was just surprised that at 19 years of age, my dad would just let me jump on a plane to the other side of the world and go, I'm off. I'll be home in a month. I don't know where I'm going to stay, but I'll call you every two weeks to let you know I'm alive. Yeah. And things were so different then because we didn't have technology like we do today. Uh, reverse charges. <laughs> yeah. And I often say to women, if they ever get in a situation like that, jump online, go book a hostel. You know, you can find something now so easily for like $15, $20. Even now couch surfing, there's apps for those things. So you can kind of easily get out of those situations. But back then, you, you're right, you wouldn't have had really anything else to do. No, no. I had very limited resources and didn't really know, body, know anybody in the town. So I just stuck it out. 
And then he was smoking bongs on the floor and just doing his best to make my life hell. He would I was sleeping in the lounge room, so he'd leave the TV on loud and proud all night to stop me from being able to get to sleep. And, oh, oh, it was brutal. But I endured it and I made the main event and I made some money, so I was able to stay there and go shopping. And actually I put on a little bit too much weight because food was so cheap and the serves were so big and I wasn't really exercising much. And so I had to come home and kind of restart. And then went to Hawaii. And, and when I got to Hawaii, I was hitchhiking because I couldn't afford to hire a car and I was staying a million miles away from the beach. There was no accommodation left on the island, essentially, when I was up on the North Shore. So we ended up staying in a caravan that had electricity but no running water for $10 a night. Were you by yourself? No, I was with another competitor. Okay. And so we shared the, the little bed in the caravan head to toe. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> just and thinking again of hitchhiking like now yeah. do not do that if you're listening do not hitchhike <laughs> no, but in Hawaii back in the 90s it was okay I think everywhere back in those days it was so much more acceptable than what it is today well yes I believe so and it felt safe back yeah. then yeah felt really safe and I when I got my license and I was affording to be I had the the financial freedom to either rent a car or purchase a car when I was over there because it was cheaper to buy a car for the month and then sell it when you left. I used to pick up hitchhikers too. Yeah. Pay it forward. Yeah, pay it forward, exactly. Yeah. So it took until 98 when you won your first world title, right? Correct. There was a lot of years for you to be able to get to that point where you were, I'm assuming, losing and then maybe winning some and then losing and then winning some. Plenty of those, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so the first, I'm just looking at all my results because it's in the back of my biography. So I've just pulled it up and had a look. And so the first event I competed in, I came 25th, which is dead last. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that sounds good. Okay, maybe yeah. not. <laughs> no. And then the second event I came, I made the main event, which means I came ninth. And then uh, that was in Sydney. Oh, okay. I've just realized that when you asked me what your first event overseas, well, it was actually at Oceanside, California, and I came Second last, I came 21st. Okay. And, and then I went to the OP Pro at Huntington Beach and, and made the main event. I'd obviously blocked that first one out because it was such a horrendous experience in Oceanside. Now, that's a place where I never felt safe. Okay. Lots of drugs, oh. lots of, yeah, lots of duplicitous behavior going on down there. And then I came home after the OP Pro and went up to Newcastle to compete in the, the event at uh, the Newcastle City Council Women's Classic at Newcastle. And I, well, I woke up that morning and went, oh, I'm competing in Newcastle next this in two days. How am I going to get to Newcastle? And my dad had gone to work. How far is Newcastle from where you were? Well, it's a one-and-a-half, two-hour drive. Okay. And so I thought, oh, how am I going to get to Newcastle today? It's such a good planner I am. So <laughs> infuriates my husband because he's a real planner and I'm just a Gemini. Oh, why don't I go to Newcastle today? So I remember going down to the local surf shop and uh, it wasn't open yet, but the, the shop next to it, which was a, a ladies' women's shop, uh, a ladies' kind of just shop, she, her daughter Jody, I used to surf and travel with and she kind of like became like a surrogate mother to me and I remember going down there with my board bag and my little backpack and I went I gotta get to Newcastle today can you advise me on how to do it she's like get the ferry and then when you get off the ferry at Circular Quay go up to see where the platform is telling you from Circular Quay to Newcastle and if there's a direct train get on that if not then you're gonna may have to change stations so I got myself to Newcastle and then I got to Newcastle and went well now what do I do <laughs> So. And so I'm assuming this is with like luggage and your boards. 
I, I literally only had one board. Oh, one board. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't afford to buy two. So I had one board. Okay. And just trusted that that would hold up. And now how many boards do you have? About 104. Wow. <laughs> and do you ride all of them still at different times? There's about 60 in my dad's garage that have all got sentimental value, whether they won events or world titles or they're just really cool boards and I've kept them. Yeah. And then I've got 36, I think, in my garage here, which when I moved in here with Kirk, my husband, he said, you know, have a maximum of about six boards and I've got about 36 and I ride half of them. Okay. I do like to mix it up. I'm a Gemini. Variety is a spice in my life. (laughs) (laughs) What was the most that you've travelled with? Going to Hawaii in the latter years, I think I took 12. How do you actually carry 12 boards? You have two board bags that look like very large coffins and you just drag them. Oh. Along with a luggage bag on wheels. I was so grateful when they put wheels on luggage bags and board bags. So we used to tie skateboards to the bottom of our board bags and things like that. And that was back in the day when you didn't have removable fins. So the board bags were even wider. And the airlines resented us. They just despised us. They would see us walking through the terminal, you know, six surfers coming through with these massive coffins of board bags and these big luggage bags because we're on the road for four months. And they'd just look at us and roll their eyes into the back of their head. And I'd go, oh, here we go. Do you know how heavy they would have been? Well, we weren't allowed to travel with anything over 32 kilos. So the majority of them weighed that because we had towels, wetsuits, boards, fins, wax, leashes deck pads, stick it, I mean, everything that went with the boards basically in those bags. And then some people, because they carried so many boards and they, we were limited to our luggage, they would store all their luggage in the board bags. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> Which worked out quite well because occasionally we had to sleep in our board bags, so at least they were well padded by our clothes. You slept in your board bags? Yeah, well, we got to places where we had no accommodation and it got dark and we didn't know where to go, so we'd just crawl into the contest area and put our boards down and sleep in our bags. Okay, that's interesting. Well, they're padded. Yeah, okay. And it's probably, if you're going there first, actually, that's a good question. Do you ever surf in winter? Yeah, of course. Not in the actual tournaments? Yeah, yeah. We've. you'd probably think we just follow the endless summer, but there's certain I events. totally would. That was my dream. That, that's why I <laughs> love surfing so much when I was young. I was like, just follow the summers. Yes, and naturally we do, but there's certain events that are in cold water, such as Jeffrey's Bay in South Africa. Uh-huh. That's that's the middle of winter and that, because that's when the predominant swells roll in. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, there are certain places. And Rip Curl Pro at Bells Beach. Well, it's not winter. That's like next week. But it's cold. Yeah, I suppose. I'm from Melbourne, so to me this is not cold yet. But <laughs> anyone north, yes, it would be cold. Well acclimated. Yeah, it's cold for us. So we have wetsuits and they've definitely improved. The technology in wetsuits improved dramatically over the years. They used to be like tea bags, the seams around the side, the around the panels in the wetsuit that would just allow water through. So it literally just felt like tea bags sitting in the water. <laughs> it puts a whole new spin on tea bagging. It really does. <laughs> it's totally where my brain went too. <laughs> I just can't get over this image of you sleeping in your board bag and it's freezing cold. So I'm thinking like J-Bay, cold. Oh, I didn't do it in J-Bay. I did it in Japan and France. And fortunately, France, it was summer, so it was nice and warm. Okay. Wasn't too much of an inconvenience. As long as it's only one night, that's okay. Yeah. And then you had time to find accommodation. The next day. Yeah. What was a place that you went to on the tour that you, well, that you thought was the most kind of different than what you had thought it was going to be? 
I remember the first time I ever experienced culture shock, and that was when I went to Tokyo. It was like sensory overload. There was just so much going on, and the lights and the buildings and the traffic and the people. I was like, whoa, what is this place? It was kind of scary. And then the second place where I had culture shock was Tahiti, of all places, when I went to Chopu. Yeah. Went from sensory overload to nature overload. I think it was maybe the fear that was around the, the reef break. It was a pretty fearful, notorious wave called Chopu. Yeah, just, but we land, you know, it was a milk run of a flight via New Zealand. And then we'd land at, say, one in the morning. And because there's no hotel accommodation down there, you're billeted into families' homes. And they would be responsible, if you had organized it, to come and pick you up. So I would, you know, get down to the house at, say, two or three, four, sometimes four o'clock in the morning because it's really slow, single lane, windy, lots of chickens, lots of dogs, <laughs> unpredictable nature. And we get all the way to the end of the road and then you, basically you're sleeping on mattresses in lounge rooms and we're all just, it's like a massive slumber party with no privacy. It's so interesting. I never had this image of the world tour being like this. It's <laughs> <laughs> not like this anymore. <laughs> it's grown up now. I was a teenager in the 90s and so I had this glamorous vision of it then and I'm assuming it was similar then, right? Yeah, the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the 2000s, I think, the first time I went to Chopu. I'm just looking at my book. Yeah, 2001. This was the same for the men as well? Yep. Yeah, it was a fun little slumber party. Everyone would get to know each other quite well. Yeah, a little too well. (laughs) I can imagine. In the nicest possible way. Oh, no, hang on. Sorry, it was 1999 was the first time I did that. So it's all changed a lot now. Yeah. I think people actually move out of their homes or maybe they've even built extensions to accommodate the surfers once a year. And they still don't have a hotel? No, there's no hotel down there, just houses. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a beautiful place, but I remember just feeling quite overwhelmed. And then the waves really far out to sea, so you've got to have a boat. And I didn't have a boat, so I had to paddle out all the time and no one will pick you up. Once again, every man for himself, every woman for herself, just sort it out when you get there and, and then I remember actually getting to the house at 4 a.m. and the owner of the house is this beautiful Tahitian lady and she was so proud of her lychee tree in the backyard that she took us out in the middle of the night. And, you know, it's 4 o'clock in the morning and started saying, Robotong, Robotong. It's like, what on earth are you talking about? Do you know it's 4 a.m. and I'm really tired. I can't see what you're referring to, but great. I got lychees in the backyard. I'm stoked. Can I go now? So, <laughs> <laughs> And that's all she wanted to show you was her lychees? Yep. Okay. But very proud delicious. of them. The lychees are great. <laughs> I like lychees. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have time to do any touristy things when you are on the tour? Yeah, I made the time to do touristy things, especially in the beginning and the latter years. So in the beginning, because I couldn't afford to go home and come back because we had events that would take us to California and then we'd go on to France and then we'd be in Hawaii. So you'd have to spend a whole lot of time in Europe, usually over a month in Europe. And so I'd go horse riding through the Pyrenees. Or when we're in Japan, I think we went and visited other areas. And in South Africa, we went on a couple of different safaris. So I remember the first time actually in 1992 when we were in South Africa. First I showed up and we're staying in a a hostel, which was kind of dangerous Mm. because I dragged my board bag down to the hostel along the cement and realized I'd drag it through a pool of blood. And that was because there was a stabbing outside the hostel that night. Oh. Yeah, not good. And then after that, we decided to, once again, there's a hitchhiking theme going on here. But once again, we hitchhiked, hitchhiked from Durban 
all the way to Nelspruit, <gasps> heading to Kruger National Park. Three white women. Wow. I've been to South Africa and I felt very unsafe and very yes. scared. And I was with locals and Oh wow. Yeah, and they made me feel quite scared because they would say to me, We don't stay here, we're gonna walk very quickly from here, from the car inside and all of that kind of stuff. So I was quite scared. So I can't imagine hitchhiking. Yeah. Well obviously ignorance was bliss back then. Mm. We were in their so-called buses, which were like 14-seater vans with all the chickens and everything on the roof. And, and we got to Nelspruit and we were on the side of the road and someone stopped and said, where are you ladies heading? We said, oh, we've got accommodation here for the night and then we're going to Kruger National Park. And they basically dropped us straight to the police station and went, you guys, <laughs> it's really dangerous what you've just achieved. Oh. Uh, and uh, you might just want to wait there until the people who are responsible for picking you up come get you. We got away with it. That's what happened. They stopped. Yep. They yep, yep. dropped you off to the police station, and then they came and got you in the morning. No, no, they came and got us right away. Oh, okay. Just that we didn't know how to contact them, so oh. the safest place to go was the the police station to make a call. Yeah, this was before mobile phones. Yes, exactly. Well before mobile phones. This is the early nineties. So I've seen a lot of places uh, outside of the tour life, but most people would say, well, if it didn't have surf, then you wouldn't go. But there was plenty of things. I think one of my favourite trips I ever took was in the latter years of my professional career when we went to Peru. We were competing in a place called Mancorda, and before that, a whole bunch of the competitors, we all got together and we went up to Cusco and went and hiked mm. through Machu Picchu. Oh, I did that last year. It was oh. so amazing. Listen, did you do one a picture? Uh, no, I've got a massive fear of heights, and even looking over at that, it makes me want to be sick. <laughs> okay, not for you then. Not for me. I struggled even like certain parts. I didn't do the. We did one day on the Inca Trail, and then we've done. We did some other hikes through Peru, which is just beautiful. But yes. yeah, I struggle with heights quite terribly. But you did that, I'm assuming. Yeah, we did want to pitch you. And the, the fog and the clouds cleared when we got up there, so oh. we got to see Machu Picchu from above, and it does look like a massive falcon. Yeah, the condor. Yeah, yeah the condor. Yeah, it's incredible. Beautiful. Yeah, and Peru has a big surf culture, don't they? They do. And then they have a big surf icon hero called Sofia Milanovic who won the world title in 2004, which was the year after I won my sixth one. She presents a lot of, of hope and aspiration for her whole country. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. Now, people often freak out in Australia with sharks. Yep. Where have you seen the most sharks? Has it been in Australia? I've surfed for over 40 years and I've only seen maybe a half a dozen sharks. The biggest shark I've seen was in Fiji. The smallest shark I've seen was in Fiji. Actually came through the lineup when we were competing and I saw its little dorsal fin. It was about two inches high and I went, hey, girls, look, there's a shark. And we all started going, oh, that's so cute. And we thought, where's its mother? Oh, <laughs> I wonder if it's swimming anywhere near it. So our feet came up onto our boards then. But uh, I haven't seen that many sharks, believe it or not. I'd say, I'd say predominantly one in South Africa, a couple in Fiji, and then the rest in Queensland. So we have a friend in common, Mr. Glenn Kelly. Oh, and yes. He was telling me that he's actually come across quite a few, even to the point that recently one of them touched him. And Where? He, I'm guessing northern beaches maybe? Yeah, I surf with him every day. Well, I, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong on the location. Yeah, it freaked me out, his stories, and I thought that you might have some really creepy ones like that too where you've been no. touched. I know. Everyone's anticipating. Give us a good shark story. It's like, I don't have any. I don't, ca I don't look for them. I don't concern myself with them. I don't worry about them. I just know they're out there. 
I think that's the way to be though, isn't it? Otherwise it you, is. you wouldn't be able to do it if you're consumed by thinking about it. Well, it's the uncertainty and the unknowingness that actually eats us up. Mm. So if you can just let go of that and detach from not knowing and go, you know what, I know they're there and that's okay. I'm willing to take that risk because the love, my love of surfing and, and immersing myself in the, in the ocean every day is my therapy. So I'm not going to deny myself my therapy because of some unknown fear. I also think that a lot of people get scared that visit Australia from other countries to go into our water thinking that they are totally filled with sharks everywhere oh, and that's just yeah. not true. Well, the whole country is filled with dangerous things, right? We've got the world's most venomous snakes, venomous spiders, spiders. we've got sharks, we've got crocodiles, you name it, we've got it. The only thing missing are grizzly bears. Yeah, and they freak me out more than anything because they're so big. <laughs> Everything big. that we have is kind of little and you can get away from. Except for the sharks. Yeah, but that's only if you go into their territory. Bears in America come out into their, like, fridges in their house. Yeah, they're hungry. <laughs> they've, been, they've been hibernating for so long. They need food. <laughs> have you seen a bear? No. In the wild? No, no, me neither. It's the only thing I haven't seen in the wild, I think. Enough to see the revenant. I don't want to see a bear in the wild. Maybe from a distance I'd like to see. Yeah, it. yeah, from a distance I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool. So when you were on the tour, did you go by yourself or were you married at that time? No, I never married when I was on tour. Kirk and I got married after I retired and the, my big wave boyfriend when I was on tour with him, we never got married. So of, of course I couldn't afford to travel on my own back in the early days. So I always travel with my competitors, my peers, my friends. Yeah. So it's a challenge to keep what happened in the water in the water and just leave it there. I traveled with a couple of girls for a few years and then I met Ken in 1997 and won my first world title in 98. So then Ken became my travel partner, my travel buddy. And you are married to someone from a very famous band, correct? I am. I'm married to Kirk Pengilly from In Excess. Was In Excess still playing when you got together? Yes, but not with Michael because Michael died in 1997 and Kirk and I met in 2002. So they were playing with a guy called John Stevens, who was the front man of Noiseworks. Okay. And that's who they did the Olympics closing ceremony with. And then I met, yeah, I met John and then he introduced me to Kirk. And, and yeah, does Kirk the rest surf? No, he can, but he's blind without his glasses. So he doesn't have the confidence to surf because he can't really see very well. Interesting. When you were younger, did you think you would ever marry somebody that would not be a surfer? No, even when I was older, I didn't think I'd marry someone. <laughs> it's probably a good balance, though, to not be. It's really healthy. We both have our individual lives, but we band together. Oh, pardon the pun, but we do. We have a <laughs> we have a, a very pun. strong connection and a very deep understanding of of what drives each other and and where we find our balance. And Kirk's really supportive of me going surfing, of course, because I'm very grumpy if I don't. So he uh, encourages me to surf every day. He obviously understands passion and love because that's what got him into yes. where he went as well. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So we complement each other in a variety of ways. When I was a teenager and I said earlier that I was obsessed with surfing, I've never surfed. I've, I don't really? Know, yeah. I'm not, I've got a bit of a fear of water. I'm not the strongest swimmer. So I think that unknown of the water, like the waves dragging me out, I think that has always scared me, which is why I've never done it. But when I had surfing posters, they were all of Shane Dorian. Have you met Shane Dorian? Yes, I've met Shane. I was so in love with Shane when I was a teenager. <laughs> like the 16-year-old me right now is like fanning myself. 
<laughs> well, he is hot. So I get where you're coming from. He's very sultry. He's got this, yeah, that kind of distant, exotic, mysterious look about him. But he's a really sweet guy and an amazing surfer and an incredibly fearless big wave surfer. Yeah. And I was obsessed with the movie that he did as well. In God's Hands? Uh-huh. Wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> what was it about that film that you obsessed? Other than Shane Dorian? No, it else? was just him. Yeah, just Shane. <laughs> it was yeah. just Shane. Those, yeah. those long pouts, you know, those, those long glaring off pouts. Looks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because I was such a basketballer. I was not a surfer, but I was so obsessed with it. All the movies, the ones that Oki did, I used to oh, watch yeah. them over and over. I did see The Blue Crush. Well, now you know if your life is complete. <laughs> if, if you've taken time to sit and watch Blue Crush, then there's nothing left for you to see. And if you don't know why I'm mentioning that, it's because Lane had a little guest role in it. Had a cameo, blinky miss it, you'll miss me. But I was there and it was my job to psych out Kate Bosworth. And how did you find going into the acting world? Well, I was a natural overactor. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we love to hear as actors. We love to hear those that go in there and don't realise that it's actually quite hard. I suppose it's the same for you, thinking that everyone thinks that they can surf and they go out there and they fall flat on their face. Yeah, yeah, even if they're remarkable athletes in other forms. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was hard, and I yeah I was laughed at by the director. Kate Lane, come on, tone it down. <laughs> and, and then I was ridiculed by my competitors, but they didn't know we were actually rolling. So I was kind of feeling a little bit despondent over the whole thing. Did they keep that? Yep, they did. They're often the best parts when people don't realise that they're rolling. My face is like. Girls, you know we're rolling them. Oh no, really? Like, yeah, thank you for ridiculing me. But I was in three Hollywood films at the same time that were on the big screen. So there was Step Into Liquid that Dana Brown produced, and that was yeah, that was an international release alongside the Billabong Odyssey, which was the, the when we were chasing down a hundred foot surf around the world. So Blue Crush, Billabong Odyssey, and Step Into Liquid were all on at the same time. You didn't want to go down to that road of acting. No, well, I didn't get paid a cent to do it and I didn't enjoy it because I was literally having to sit on the beach and be told when I could and couldn't surf and you have to get to the the makeup truck at 5.30 in the morning to sit on the beach until 3.30 in the afternoon before they're like, okay, Lane, you're seen. Mm -hmm. Hang on, I've just been watching Perfect Waves all day. Screw this, I'm out of here. Yeah. (laughs) I'm done. Chuck my dummy spit. Don't you know who I am? (laughs) That's right. I just want to be out there all day. That That's the real stuff you're going to get is when I'm out there doing my thing. That's it. But don't film me because I'm not I'm not a body double or a stunt double for anyone. Because Rochelle Ballard was the double for Kate Bosworth mm-hmm. and Megan Abubo was for Michelle Rodriguez and Sanoa could surf herself. So I wasn't really required to do any of the double stuff. So I basically, because Megan and Rochelle had to sit there all day, I just said, give me a call when they're ready to shoot because I'm only 500, you know, it's about 300 metres up the beach so where I lived at the time. The glamour of Hollywood, hurry up and wait, just like television. So do you have some recommendations? Maybe you don't want to tell me this, but little secret surf spots. No. no you're like, I do not want to tell you. I don't want anyone in my surf spots. I'm going to shine a light on my little secret surf spot. I don't know how many surfers will be listening to this podcast, but I do not wish to expose any little secrets <laughs> anywhere in the world. Where's your favourite place to surf? 
My favorite place to surf is Hawaii. I love big waves, warm water, uh, the unpredictability of nature over there. I love how it challenges me, gives me the biggest adrenaline rush, can also deliver me the greatest hiding. And it can really slaughter me and I can get really seriously wiped out there. And it just it's a dose of humility dealt up very kindly by Mother Nature. Have you had any incidents when you were traveling around where you felt unsafe? Um... Because it sounds like you guys were doing a lot of things to try to trying to get by and just get around. From memory, I never truly felt. Oh yes, actually yes, there was one uh, when we went to Brazil for the first time. So we had to go to Rio de Janeiro, and we were advised. And this was what year was this? 1991, and we were advised to. Oh no, sorry, it was 1992 to not take anything of any value. Okay. So basically, I took a bag that was the size of, I don't know, a tiny little overnight bag mm-hmm. and I took one board and I took, I wasn't allowed to take any jewellery. I had to, I took a watch because I needed one for my heat and I basically just took the bare essentials and when we got there, or actually just getting there was a challenge because I was booked on two different planes in the event that I didn't make the connection to the first plane and yet that flight was delayed and then when I got onto the next flight, it had left, and when I got onto that next flight, I didn't have a seat. Oh. Yeah, so it was a bit of a challenge. And a, so what and happened? It, well, I was with a couple of world champions with Pam Burridge and Wendy Bother, and they said to me, don't get off this plane, you have to stay on this plane because the other plane's gone now, so you don't have a backup. And then I negotiated with my well, – I didn't, I didn't really speak any Portuguese, but fortunately the cabin crew spoke English, and they asked a guy who had his child on his seat next to him to sit on his lap. So I got to sit on the kid's seat. I've never heard of that, that you can be on a plane that there's no seat for you. Yeah, happens in Brazil. Wow, okay. Yeah, so yeah, I negotiated, got a seat, got to Brazil and then we stood at the airport waiting for people to come and get us and they come and got us and they took us to a hotel and there was two armed guards at the front door with semi-automatic weapons Mm -hmm. and we were advised not to walk out on our own at any time of day but especially after dark. So that was relatively frightening. But then uh, many years later. That, that's I, the scariest that you've got? Yeah, that's about oh, it. Oh, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never felt fearful for my life when I've travelled. Well, that's great. Especially back in those days when you were doing things like hitchhiking and all that kind of stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah I can't say I've ever felt overly concerned. Yeah, or the worst I've had, which was in a five-star resort in Dominican Republic I know and that was definitely the worst I've spoken about that in previous episodes but that's where a staff member rang and basically threatened to do very horrific things to me and I was alone in the room so that was the scariest thing that I've had wow yeah and that was at a five-star resort I've stayed at backpackers I've stayed at other places and never had an issue yeah wow that's scary yeah did you report that incident well, yeah, I went down straight away and spoke to the, the staff and they were kind of like, no big deal. And But then in those places you have your own butler and the butler came and he moved me and said, no, we've got to move you. It's come from inside the resort. It means it's a staff member. They know where you are. They can get into your room. So I had to be moved to another room. I only had one night left, but it was super, super scary. Wow, that is scary. Had my backpack up against the, the door at night. and oh, oh. That's, oh, that's no fun. No. That's the worst that's really happened to me. So still, I think that's okay. I think other people have had, you know, worse things that have happened. 
Yes. Yeah. I know some. I know some horror stories, but fortunately, I haven't experienced any of them. What's the biggest wave that you've taken? Yeah, I rode a fifty-foot wave once. Actually, I rode two of them, so that was pretty exciting and lots of fun. It's yeah, it's a story that I tell on stage quite often about how you to address and overcome fear because it was really fearful. Absolutely, really that's the first thing that I thought of. I was like, <gasps> how did you do that? Yeah, well, exactly. A quite an a, well, an adrenaline-filled experience. I, so I you mean, obviously get every... towed in from a, yes. a jet ski. Yes. Where was that? Oh, it was on the outer reefs of Hawaii on Oahu. Mm-hmm. And it was in between, it's an outside reef called Outside Log Cabins. And it's kind of right in the middle of Pipeline and Waimea Bay, but three quarters of a mile out to sea. Wow. Yeah, it was cool. It was beautiful. It was fun. I used to go down to the Rip Curl Pro every year when I was a teenager, when I was obsessed. And I was in the US in 98. And that was the first time my brother had rang me and said, they're towing people in. Every time I've been, I've never seen it that big. Well, it doesn't get 50 feet. It doesn't have the capacity to hold swell that large, but I've surfed it quite like 10 to 12 feet, which is has about a 25-foot face on it. So it's, that's a large wave. Obviously, it happened when I was away and it was the first time that I hadn't been down there. And I was like, no, of course. The year before, it was pathetic. There was hardly any waves and, yeah, it was not good. But that year was nuts. And I remember being so sad that I was away. I'd never seen surfers being towed in before. And I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's the way to do it. It's fun being towed in too because obviously you're going a lot faster and you get to be towed into the sweet spot on the wave so you don't have to negotiate really steep drops and late takeoffs and you can stay out of the way of the, the impact of the wave. And then also the jet ski can come pick you up and keep you out of harm's way. So for those that don't know, Rip Curl Pro, it's about to start. So it goes yes. from the 17th to the 27th of April. So if yep. you're in Victoria and you want to head down, head down to Bells. Now, Lane, what's your predictions? Who do you think might win? My money's on Carissa Moore Okay. for the women. She's so powerful and she loves that way. But then Steph Gilmore's had a pretty ordinary start to the season up in Queensland and will want to make amends for that and has won four bells. So she's one of the most successful surfers down there. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm hedging my bets, but they're my two favourites in the women's. And in the men's, oh, man, it's harder to pick than a broken nose. There are so many amazing surfers on tour. I'd love to see the rookie get up and win bells, and I reckon he's got the capacity and the and the strength to do it, and that's why. Wade Carmichael. Okay. All right. Well, let's keep our eyes on that and see what happens. Yeah. Eyes peeled. Yeah. Now, can you tell me a little bit about Aim for the Stars? I can. So it's a foundation I started 15 years ago to provide financial and moral support for young girls and women to achieve their dreams in all walks of life. So if you've got a, an, a grand ambition and you've got the courage to you know, take action towards achieving it and then and also the courage to put your hand up and ask for help, that we, that's where we come in. So we provide $3,000 grants to girls over the last 15 years, about a million dollars in grants and to over 500 girls. So oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's a passion project. We've had um, some extraordinary success stories from all around the country, from musicians to marine biologists and heart research scientists, um, environmental law. So not just athletes? No, body image activists. Yeah, just extraordinary women doing some amazing things. Oh, that's good. And I guess, you know, from you being the surfer and going out and counting every penny, you know how important that little bit of a, a bump to start is. Absolutely. And I also know how important it is to receive that bump before you've made it to the top because everyone wants to wait until you get there before they invest in you. Yeah. 
I invest in these women on the way up, not when they get there. Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to put a link to that in the description. So if anyone wants to go through Donate, you can head down to the description and it'll all be there. Thank you. We are approaching our destination. Ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts for the final five. So your favourite city or town? Gosh, there's so many, but mm. you have to pick one. Mm-hmm. Manly. <laughs> Which is in New South Wales, Australia for my international listeners. That's it. Actually, no, Sydney is my favourite city. And Manly on the northern beaches of Sydney is my favourite town. Yeah, and if you go and visit Sydney, take the ferry across to Manly. It is beautiful. It's the only way to travel. I'm very lucky that I get to go and stay in the northern beaches when I go to Sydney. So I get to see how beautiful it is. You get to come to God's country. It is beautiful. The weirdest food you've ever eaten? Crocodile balls which I didn't even know they had them. Testicles? Yep. Oh! <laughs> I didn't know. I've never heard of that. Unless they lied to me and it was just balls of crocodile, but they had me reason to believe that it was testicles of the crocodile. Oh, and were they delicious? Tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mm. you know it. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, delicious. Yeah. Yep. I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Beaches or mountains? Beaches. Of course. <laughs> of I do course. love mountains. I do get a little bit tired of the ocean and the beach and the beautiful crystal clear oceans and the pristine white beach, sandy beaches. So then I revert to the mountains, but only for a couple of days and then I have to get back to the salt water. Mm. So it has to be salt water beaches. None of this fresh water stuff it has to be salty. Salty. Just, it's just not the same. A tourist site that you'd recommend is a must-see. The Jesus Christ statue at the back of Rio de Janeiro. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. Amazing. I've seen it. I've never been. My last trip when I went to South America, I considered going to Brazil and I decided against it because I just thought that doesn't really draw me there. No? What does draw you there? Well, no, because that's the main thing that you see is that image. Yes. And it doesn't draw me there. But now that you're saying it. Well, it's rather large. <laughs> <laughs> and we know you like big things because you like the size of the wave being 50 foot. So we know that you like true. large things. True. True that. Christ the Redeemer is just, it's just an amazing statue that how it. Um, Dominates the city skyline because yeah, you can yeah. see it from anywhere, can't you? You can, yeah. And you just feel so insignificant when you're up there. I mean, you're you're miles above everything. Maybe it's not a good place for you because it is quite high up, and it's oh yeah, I might have a panic attack. Yep, mm-hmm. might have a panic attack. But I think it's just a pretty one of the like thirty meter tall statue. I just think it's a remarkable Art Deco statue. Feet, like how did they build that up there? <laughs> but on top of that, I think the one place that you must see is is Machu Picchu. Yeah. That's just phenomenal that's just that actually is more mind-blowing than the statue of christ redeemer it's i think yeah now i think about it machu Machu picchu is is just one of those eye-opening enlightening spiritual grounds where you just go how did this happen yeah how did they get it up here how did anyone build up on a mountain yeah can you say thank you in another language i can i can say it in japanese domo arigato gozaimashita I can say it in Italian, grazie. I can say it in French, merci. I can say it in, I think I can say it in, oh, yeah, Portuguese, obrigado. And <laughs> what else? That's pretty be. good. Yeah, that'll do. 
Yeah, that's pretty good. Do you have any tips for my listeners? Or if they want to travel with surfboards? Yes, absolutely. We tend to overpack our boards thinking that if we wrap them in bubble wrap and, you know, do everything that we can to protect them, that will protect your boards. But quite honestly, less is more from my personal experience because baggage handlers go, oh, this thing's really well padded. I'll just throw it. They don't respect the equipment. So I'd say less is more. Like You don't need to go to all those lengths. And honestly, if they want to destroy your boards, they will find a way to destroy them. Have you had any boards destroyed? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, broken in half, fins smashed out, <gasps> or just not show up. We saw actually baggage handlers in South Africa open up the baggage compartment of the plane before they pulled the conveyor belt up and just push all their boards out. Push them out before you took off? No, 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 when we landed. Yeah. And you know how they put a conveyor belt up to let, to bring the luggage bags out? Yeah. Yeah, they just didn't wait for the conveyor belt. They just pushed our boards out of the plane onto the tarmac. Oh, so then they broke? Ah, uh, I get you. So, you know, remove fins, put towels at the, at the nose, put the wetsuits at the tails and hope for the best. <laughs> but don't, and don't have, make sure you don't have leashes in between the boards because when they get, the boards get compressed, the leashes dent the boards. Oh, there's some great tips. And carry the fins separately in your luggage bag. In the event that if you're traveling with mates and your boards don't show up, you can put your fins in one of theirs. Okay. Is the fin the most important part? I think so, yeah. Oh, okay. The fin will determine how the board performs. There's only so much the shape and the dimensions of the board will influence, but it's the fin that determines how it really goes. Okay, because a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the board. Well, of course. I mean, the board's got to be right because there's a lot of emphasis that needs to go into having the right equipment under your feet. But if it's not working, don't just think it's the board's fault. Start experimenting with your fins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been amazing talking to you, and I hope my listeners have really enjoyed it and taken some great tips away, especially how to pack their boards when they're traveling. <laughs> I trust that's been entertaining and insightful. So, thank you for your time, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.